This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who thinks the Democrats need a counterpoint to Trump's Make America Great Again hats, maybe a sweater vest. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know around the tech industry and more. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Stephanie Rule, an anchor at MSNBC and a correspondent at NBC News. I've known her a very long time, and she now has a podcast called Modern Rules. That's spelled R-U-H-L-E-S. Very clever. Very clever. Stephanie, welcome to Rico Dico. It's a great chair, actually. Thank you. Thank you. So anyway, so uh, so tell me about, uh, like, give people your background, how you got to MSNBC, because you, you focus in on business, you focus in on power, you focus in on tech. Media, I do. You've uh, a lot more than on MSNBC, which is highly, much more political. Anchors are much more political. It is. I don't have a politics background. Right. I, I really don't have a media background. I spent 14 years in investment banking. So talk about that. Talk uh, about I your actually background. ran the credit derivatives business at Deutsche Bank, which is just a few doors down from where we are right now. It kind of mm-hmm. gave me the chills when I came down here. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, as I said, so I was in banking for 14 years, but I was always interested in the media. But why of, were you in banking? You just went out of college? You decided uh, to give— Again, even even that was by chance. I went to college originally to study engineering, mm-hmm. and after a semester, I decided I didn't want to be an engineer. Mm-hmm. And I had an older sister that was graduating from architecture school. Right. And I said, I guess I'll transfer. And she said, no, go abroad. Go abroad for as long as you can, because she was just starting work. And she said, once you leave school, you get two weeks off a year, and it's game over. Mm-hmm. So I went and I found the dean of the School of International Business, and I said, can you help me figure this out? So I left for the next two and a half years, and I went to Kenya, Guatemala, Costa Rica, and Kenya. Wow. And Italy was the last place where I was studying, and I wanted to stay in Europe, but I had no money left. Mm -hmm. So I started writing letters. to. I'm like, oh, maybe I'll go work at a bank. They have banks all around the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's truly how it started. Okay. So I, I wrote letters to Lehigh alumni. I got a job with Merrill Lynch, and I was supposed to go work in Switzerland. But before the summer started, the team had all quit, and they said, well, you can go to New York for the summer. So I show up at Merrill Lynch in New York. I was from New Jersey, so it was fine. And, uh, you know, it was like a typical back office, horrible documentation job. And one day I had to deliver something onto the trading floor, which is looks the same as a newsroom, right? Mm-hmm. So if you love a newsroom, the adrenaline, the excitement, you know, news happening around the world when you're sleeping affects your day, then you're going to love it. I met two guys uh, who are interest rate derivatives traders. I didn't even know what that was. And I pulled the, hey, if I come in early and, and stay late, will you teach me what you do? They said yes. And uh, that was kind of, you know, kind of like the rest is history. I ended up going to Credit Suisse right out of undergrad. I 
fell into the derivatives business really early because I figured, probably not dissimilar to a lot of other businesses, I figured if I go into a business that's not mature, that's brand new, there'll be no one with more experience than me, Mm -hmm. right? If you just go into corporate bonds or high yield or equities, there's there's a million 50-year-old guys. And I thought, why don't I get into a business that barely exists? So I kind of rode that wave. Uh, The financial crisis happened. And after it did, I I mean, A, if you were in derivatives products, it was going to be bad after the crisis. But I actually thought more about, at that point, I had two kids. And I thought, I don't want to have a job. I want to have a career. Mm -hmm. Because if you're going to be away from your children that much— and your rent is already paid for, you got to be doing something of impact. Yeah. And I uh, used to do some TV as a guest, but one day I was giving a speech for a nonprofit called the White House Project, Mm -hmm. which was focused on getting women across industries to really senior levels. And the founder had the board having lunch, and she said, women and minorities always get lumped together. Women and minorities. She said, but if you take the 50 most powerful black men in the United States, they do way more for each other than women do. We're not out to get each other. She said, but, you know, once a woman gets on a board, she's like, great, I'm all set. She's not saying to the rest of her network, Kara, what do you want to do next? Let me help Mm -hmm. you. And she said, everybody here is senior in your field. You each need to say what you want to do next, and someone else at the table has to get you there. Mm -hmm. And... There was a woman who ran human capital management, essentially HR at Bloomberg. And I said, I've always wanted to work in media. I said, since the crisis, banking industry has failed to tell their story. It's pathetic. I mean, they fu- finance fuels the American dream, and they, they're failing at finding their new path. And she said, you know, I saw you speaking earlier, and I thought you'd be great on TV. I'm going to introduce you to Andy Lack, who now runs NBC, but at the time ran Bloomberg. And I met him, and he said, in the new world of media— You don't need to know how to be on TV. You need to know content, love the content, and the audience has to care about you. And I said, I have no idea if I'm number three, but I'm definitely number one and two. And it was a huge leap for me to leave my career. And I said, you can hire me for nothing, for the lowest amount of money as anyone in this building. You could fire me at any time, Mm -hmm. but I need you to give me a show to anchor and hire somebody to teach me how to be on TV. Most people, like, try really hard to get to be an anchor. That's kind of a quick— yeah, obviously, it was a huge ask. Right, um, right. But I felt like for—listen, th- they easily could have said no, but I was taking a, I was taking a very well, big risk. Bloomberg was a bit of a backwater in TV at that point, much more so than— Yeah, I mean, Bloomberg's not a media-media right. organization. Right. And also, the name of the game in business TV, to be honest, is bookings. Right. And tons of those people in the investment community that they wanted to have on air, that was my community. Right. And so, uh, yes, it was a big ask, but I was saying— Listen, you can fire me at any time. It'll cost you almost nothing. And they were like, we're Bloomberg, sure. Andy Lack said, let's do it. And then it was almost just luck. But a few months into it, I was part of the team that broke a story that's now known as the London Whale, which was sort of this huge, disastrous, multi-billion dollar loss at J.P. Morgan. And for me, it was like a crash course in journalism. And it was sort of personally devastating in that this trader— that lost billions of yes. dollars for J.P. Morgan was in the exact business that I was in. Mm-hmm. And the other person who's in that exact business was my husband. So my husband was one of this trader's counterparts at Credit mm-hmm. Suisse. Mm-hmm. And this guy was at J.P. Morgan. And I remember the first day someone had sent me a Bloomberg message. You know, that's like an instant message or a text that said, there is a trader in the market whose positions are so big, they're so outsized, he cannot get out of this without destroying the market. Right. And I came home from work, and uh, my husband's standing in the kitchen, and I said to him, oh, hey, do you know this guy named Bruno Ixil? And I saw his face just go white. Mm-hmm. 
And he said, uh, I got to call my compliance department and I got to go for a run. And he left the house. And so I called Bloomberg and I'm like, uh, I think we might be onto something here. Because also at that point, several media organizations were like swirling around it. Right. And I remember like, th- so so we did. he and I didn't talk about it again. And then as the story was breaking, all of a sudden people, like my own former desk, because I mean, it destroyed people's businesses, mm-hmm. were so pissed at me. Like I was a trader. And I said to him, I'm like, oh my God, like, I'm so sorry. And he said, listen, if you don't cover this story, then you're a loser. What was the point in you doing this? Like, you should be ashamed if the thing you know best, you're not doing. So that was sort of this unbelievable experience in in learning this path. And I stayed at Bloomberg for five years. Uh, So your expertise in finance helped you do this. Yeah, at Bloomberg was a much easier transition for me than NBC. Because they focused Because I was the audience. Right, the whole game is, who's the audience? I knew the audience. Mm -hmm. And... I, you were the audience. I, yeah, I was the audience, so it was it was much easier for me. Mm-hmm. I then moved to NBC. Andy Lackett, I knew each other really well. I moved to NBC three years ago, and I knew nothing about politics. Mm-hmm. So I would say sort of— So what did you think when you were going, uh, especially in a, network, a cable network position, which is different than a network network position? You know, I wasn't sure if it was the right move for me mm-hmm. because I love business. I love the content. It'll always be what I'm most interested in. But it's small, and it wasn't going to grow. And so I thought, let me take this leap. And when I joined, I joined to do the Saturday Today show and an MSNBC show. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, like, I don't know anything about politics, but we'll see. And and I was working six days a week. And after six months of doing both of those, kind of my personal life was falling apart. I had Mm -hmm. three kids at that point. Mm -hmm. And working six days a week just— doesn't work. Right. And uh, so I left doing the Saturday Today Show and and focused on MSNBC because things were getting crazier and crazier. And then I started doing a second show mm-hmm. on MS. And even at MS, we're, we're completely politics and breaking news. But I do have a Definitely an economic focus. Right, you do. So talk about what you're trying to do there, because you're in the midst of, you know, I want to get to cable right now, where, what it's like and, and the, the political atmosphere. But you focus in on business and, and it's sort of not CNBC, but like that. Uh, not so much CNBC. that's where you naturally would have gone, Yes, right? not, not CNBC, but more what the—listen— business news focuses on markets, mm-hmm. and there's a humongous difference between markets and the economy. Mm-hmm. And I actually remember— I was still at Bloomberg at the time. President mm-hmm. Obama, in his last State of the Union address, mm-hmm. said, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get my words exactly correct. He said, there's been an extraordinary economic recovery, and anyone who says we are not on the rise is peddling lies. Mm-hmm. And I remember that like it was yesterday, mm-hmm. because it was right then I felt like I watched the Trump voter be born. Because unless you were an asset holder, right, in, in, a, in a major coastal city— you know, since the financial crisis, huge pockets of this country did not improve. And that and and when you talk about income inequality, we've been talking about it for 10 years, but nobody's really taken it on because it's really complicated. And so if you were somebody who lost your home in the subprime crisis, if you worked in the auto industry, mm-hmm. things didn't improve for you. Right. They improved for you if you were an executive. Right. And we're looking more and more, not this capitalism versus socialism, but capitalism in its current form isn't working perfectly at all. Mm-hmm. But we keep blaming the CEOs. Mm-hmm. It's like blaming Zuckerberg. And I'm not saying Zuckerberg's a great guy, mm-hmm. but Zuckerberg is actually doing what his—he's not breaking the law. And so, like, for me, I remember last week watching Mark Zuckerberg 
testimony thinking whether he did good or bad, and I, I have views on that, looking at all the headlines going, lawmakers are grilling him, lawmakers are giving it to him, my frustration was giving it to him. That would be like me annihilating my kids for not doing their homework when I didn't register them into school. Mm-hmm. We have to, the government's job is to set the rules. They have not set the rules for these companies. Right. It is CEOs' jobs to serve their employees, their shareholders, and their customers. Mm-hmm. Now, whether you're talking about the business roundtable or other business leaders saying, well, we need to do more for our employees now, mm-hmm. I I'll believe it when the rules change. Right. Because okay. in the world, we, will get we don't, we we will don't get self-police. Right, right. Oh, sorry. So that's okay. That's good. I, 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 what, no, I do no. want to talk about that because I want to know where a, a lot about economics. The focus of your shows are primarily on business leaders. You bring, or, well, or, no, I mean, it's or politics. politics. Listen, we're covering the president and politics every day. But mm-hmm. I would say— But it's with an economic lens. Yeah, it's definitely through an economic lens because I don't think things are as divided. The, the media does a brilliant job, especially social media, of dividing and capitalizing on the divisions. Mm-hmm. And there is definitely a universe and, and a universe of cable news viewers who are members of the resistance or they're hardcore Trumpers— and I probably, I'm not the favorite of either one, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think if you stick to numbers, that's the best place to expose the president. The president calls himself the pro-business guy, the transactional president, uh, Mr. Economy. He's actually not. If you look at legislative agenda, with the exception of a record tax break, he hasn't done much. And growth in this country is exactly so where still it was the same thing before. you're talking about. Yes, yeah. and, and so— So the coastals get richer. The coastals are getting richer. Um, and really, it's like the richest of the rich. Because 70% of our country—I don't mean, just mean poor people—feel like they're struggling. Mm-hmm. So right here in New York City, you could say, well, these are the coastal elites— there's a ton of people here who are struggling yeah. because the world has gotten super expensive, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? If, if you and I both grew up in New Jersey, if you grew up in—if if you were in New Jersey right now and you had a traditional nuclear family and let's say one parent is an engineer and the mm-hmm. other parent stays at home or has a, a small job right. and let's say you make $150,000 a year, you can't afford to send your two kids to right. school. Right, right, And And when we keep saying that— angry Trump voter, that disgruntled voter. There's a lot of quiet Trump voters out there, that that shadow voter who feels like I'm getting screwed by the system. And certain parts of the media, and I'll say conservative media, preys on that insecurity and mm-hmm. says, your son isn't going to get into college. Corporate America is being taken over by angry women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that great son of yours, he might be accused of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. That's a false narrative that's out there. But it's a real narrative, and we need to talk to every voter and every person out there because the question that got Ronald Reagan reelected, are you better off, mm-hmm. we need to keep asking every single day. With the exception of, of certain pocket industries like real estate um, and people who are asset holders like the stock market— I don't see that much evidence that people are better off. And that is a huge focus for me. All right. So you spent a lot of time doing that. And you, you quiz business leaders. And one of the things you're known on the show is for being very tough in your interviews with people. So are you. Yeah, I know that. But that's <laughs> that goes in. But it's not, it doesn't happen a lot on cable television. It's usually a lot of yelling, you know, yelling back and forth to people who disagree. Are so you, I don't do you, bring anybody on TV who I don't respect. Uh-huh. And I don't bring anybody on who I think is just a liar. Mm-hmm. And again, so like maybe that is a— long-term play for me because you get lots of headlines when you have these battles on TV. Right. I have less and less of them. Listen, I'd love to have people from the administration on, 
but I only want to have people on who actually work on policy. Mm-hmm. Somebody who's going to come on our air and just push nonsense, I'm not going to give my air to because we did make that, or I made that mistake in 2016. And there were surrogates that came on my air that pushed so many lies. I mean, it would be like, let's say we sat down for an interview. The moment the cameras are rolling, you're telling me that the sky is green and the grass is blue, and you can't combat all of those lies, and they make their way through. Mm -hmm. So for everything I make, and I'm not saying I succeed at it, my goal at the end of every segment, does this content help our audience get better and smarter? Because I actually think that every person out there That's what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And I think they're just trying to take care of their families. Like, I don't even think America first is such a terrible concept because in truth, I think a lot of us run our families that way, Mm -hmm. right? I take care of my family and in my excess capacity, I take care of others. The sick and demented thing is that the president has aborted that idea of America first into this twisted Misogynistic. Not just America first, me alone, misogynistic, racist. And I think that all of those people deserve better. And when I look at, for example, Democrats, I think, and I've called six different candidates and said, I really think you should have three people on your team sitting there fact-checking the hell out of the president every minute of every day and getting that content out there. Think about, I remember it was right after— I don't know. There was like a few horrible things Mm -hmm. around immigration that was just humiliating for Republicans who had to stand with the president. And I remember he went to the podium one day and he said, you know, I'm just sick and tired of immigrants coming to this country and immediately going on welfare. And here's the thing. That line, that sentiment, that actually resonates with a lot of people outside Mm -hmm. of his base who are going, you know what? I got crappy health care. You know, my kids don't go to good schools. But here's the thing. The majority of immigrants who come here are not even eligible mm-hmm. for this welfare. Guy got it. Okay? Like, when they talk about Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty, we didn't have Social Security back right. then. Like, that is what I think we can focus on. And it gets missed in this, oh, my God, let's just set our hair on fire over some nonsense, he said. Right. All right. Well, nonsense is important, yes, too. Yes, you know what? But I we're going to talk about that. Yes. that when we get back. We're here with Stephanie Rule from MSNBC, who's also the host of a podcast called Modern Rules. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this and talk about the podcast. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. 
We're here with Stephanie Rule from MSNBC. She has a show on the on the network um, on cable, and we've been talking a little bit about what she does. Now, you started a podcast called Modern Rules. Explain to me. You're just trying to copy me, but that's another issue. So, but, I, it's all I try to do in yeah, life is right, copy Okay, you. so, you know, here you are on cable, which a lot of people, it doesn't get the same amount of attention in terms of the way it divides society as social media does. We can get into that later. Um, but you're doing a podcast, which is now the thing. It is now the thing. And listen, so, if you do it wrong, me. it's like a tree falling in the forest. So <laughs> that, that could be the case. Yeah. I just felt over the last two years— But everyone rushed to get on TV, but now everyone's rushing to get a podcast. It's interesting. That's true. And listen, we've got podcast fever. Mm-hmm. But over the last year, I felt like more and more, even my TV guests during the commercial break would say something, what I thought was like the smartest thing they said in the hour, and they'd go, well, I, I wouldn't say that on TV. Or now that we've gotten into this aggressive cancel culture, Mm -hmm. business leaders who I respect, who I know well, because I probably go see a C-suite type of person once every two weeks Mm -hmm. just to check in and see what they think is most important, what breaks through. And over and over, I I keep hearing people saying, I just don't want to engage anymore. It's not worth it. Mm -hmm. And couple that with all the people in our lives who— are going home for the holidays, are defriending their best buddy in high school. And I'm saying, if we're not talking about important cultural issues, there is no progress. And we are changing culturally. Like, this is a huge moment of progress. But if we keep holing up in our echo chambers, like, the progress is going to die. I was just talking and about Alexis. I, I met a woman a year and a half. I think about her all the time when I do my show. I'm in a dude ranch in upstate New York with my husband and kids. <laughs> And the the that visual already is amazing. Yeah. And the owner said, one of our waitresses would like to come talk to you. Could she come over? So mm-hmm. I, my kids left the table, and I said, sure. She goes, I want to tell you why I love President Trump. Mm-hmm. I said, great, sit down. She said, I love President Trump because he loves me. And she said, and you, you think I'm white trash? Mm-hmm. And I said, oh my gosh. I said, I, I absolutely don't. I, I, why, why would you think that? And I said, and what is it about President Trump that you like so much? His policies. She goes, I don't know anything about his policies but I know he came to see me. I know he cares. Nobody else came. And then she said, where you live? And she totally played me. She said, do you have charter schools where you live? Mm -hmm. And I said, yes, my husband here, he's the board chair of a charter school Mm -hmm. in Brooklyn. She goes, here we have the worst schools in New York State. Nobody cares. Mm -hmm. She said, this restaurant gives me enough hours that I can't get a second job, but not enough that I can get health care. She said, I'm a single mom with grandchildren. They have special needs. They need social services. Nobody answers the phone. And she said, she made an immigration dig. Oh, she said, I bet you raise money for charities in New York. Mm -hmm. And she said, here, we don't have any of that. She goes, not like the sisters do. And so then that was like her thinly veiled racist remark, Mm -hmm. right? So all the things she was saying throughout at the face— We're racist. We're ignorant that you would quickly say all of these things about her. Mm-hmm. But then she said, I don't, and these grandchildren of mine, they're not washing up on shore on a boat. She said, my story isn't ugly enough to be in your newspaper, but I'm not pretty enough to go to your house for dinner. Whoa. Totally. Yeah. And the thing is, again. A little bit Stephanie, she's still an asshole, but go ahead. I'm not saying she's not an asshole. Okay. okay. There's assholes all, all over right. the okay. place. All right. All right. Go ahead. But I'm saying that's a person who's struggling, Absolutely. who is trying to get by. Mm-hmm. And it, it falls into that. Because I remember thinking, like, why did that deplorable thing, like, like there are tons of Trump supporters who are deplorable. Like, why mm-hmm. did that matter so much? Mm-hmm. Because I think there are a lot of people out there who aren't hateful. Mm-hmm. I think they're hopeless. Mm-hmm. 
And income inequality is a huge freaking problem. And how do you address the hollowing out of America? And nobody's figured it out. Mm -hmm. And the president falsely went to these places and said, I'm going to solve it for you. Now, where it's a true crime is he's not even remotely trying, right? Other presidents, once they've become president, have actually traveled the country and become empathetic. When you even say that the president goes to these places, he doesn't. His plane lands, they set up a tent next to his plane, they shoot some T-shirts and hats out of cannons, and then it gets right back on the plane and leaves. Mm -hmm. So he actually said to those people, I am going to solve this for you, and they believed it. The truth is, he's not. I mean, the amount of small farmers this year that are going to mm -hmm. go bankrupt, right. poultry farmers, are you kidding me? It, it's like corporate America So you're talking about a world that, that revolves around economics, the, the economic issues. Because really what that woman was talking about was economic issues. You're Absolutely. Not, and, the, and it's being morphed into a fear-based thing of you're not getting yours and someone else is. That's the second drop. Yes. Of, like, you, you're not just not getting yours, but someone else is taking it off of you. And when plate. you make that person, when you even say privilege to that person, mm -hmm. their head explodes. Mm -hmm. Listen, you could say to them, but do well, you How did this conversation end? So here she is pretty much insulting you. A hundred percent. I mean, we kind of got into it, but there wasn't really a point. Mm -hmm. And I'm leaving out like a decent amount of curse words mm -hmm. that were in there. And my kids mm -hmm. were sort of returning to the table. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we kind of ended it there. But I, her perspective is something that, that, act, that gives me hope, actually, in terms of the hate on the rise. I think it's also connected to giving a shit about one another, mm -hmm. right? In New York City, my mother, who lives in New Jersey, knows my neighbors much better than I do. Mm -hmm. And other people, I'm sure, have talked to you about this. You know, in Washington, when things changed 20 years ago and people stopped moving their families to D.C., my husband is from D.C. And when he went to school, he went to school with lots of kids of Republicans and Democrats. You know, you could fight all day long on the Hill, but when you go to the same grocery store and the same cocktail party, mm -hmm. you connect as humans. That humanity is gone out of politics, and it's starting to escape, you know, it's it's dissipating in our real lives. And then if our, we think we're connected on social media, but on social media, we're personas, we're not people. Right, okay. And so all of this to me is a reminder that we need a, a re-injection of humanity. So, and it's why I wanted to do the podcast. So what are you focusing on? The podcast is all about it. culture. So it's all about culture. Explain what you're it's, trying to do. The future of feminism, what the future of masculinity, uh, life after Me Too, forgiveness, the power of social media, just lots of topics that— People either aren't weighing in on or they are. You know, we talk about white privilege. We talk about race. And I think if you have these conversations, honest ones, where you're speaking to people who you respect and they respect you, mm -hmm. you're not at risk of some horrible, offensive situation where people are storming out. Mm -hmm. Right? Well, I interviewed uh, Questlove and a woman named Dana Kennedy. Dana Kennedy is the head of the Pulitzer organization. Mm -hmm. uh, she's African-American, and she's, she's a single mom. She's, our, our sons are our best friends. And I asked them, and I know it's like a total stereotypical, about why it's offensive to call an African-American person articulate. Because when white people are sitting around a room, they often say, like, I don't know, why is that offensive? And both of them said to me, here's why it's offensive. Because you're surprised. Mm -hmm. You're surprised that someone who looks like me and sounds like me could come across this smart. And Dana said to me, every person who's ever run Pulitzer before I have has been a, a white guy. You think anybody's ever said to them they're articulate? Mm -hmm. And all I'm saying is, and at the end of every podcast, I say, all right, here's what I heard. Here's what I think. Here's what I'm going to do. Because we're not going to change who we are. But if we can gain a little bit of perspective, I think we can get better. Now, I know you disagree with me in that 
I've often said, like, you know, if we just opened our minds and hearts a little. But I've learned how naive and privileged it is for me to say that because I've never woken up and been discriminated against because of my age, my race, my financial situation, well, you have, my sexual you're not preference. Attention. <laughs> yes, but I'm saying not in a way that has made me think we need to burn the house down. Absolutely, I, it's not a question of burn the house down. I think one of the issues is you know let's get to the this this, this news today about Twitter, for example, this free speech. You're talking about everybody. If we only talked. This is what I think there is a cynical group of people that are gaming people who have that attitude. If we only talked, oh, yeah, I'm going to get in there and seem reasonable and seem like I like that person. That person's a nice person. When they have appalling attitudes, do appalling lies, and are gaming the people who have the good sense to want to connect with people. And I think that if everyone, all things being equal, if you had differences and you talk them out, that's very different from a group of people who are just cynically taking advantage of a good tendency. Yes. There are horrible bad actors that should be called There's a lot of them. A lot of them. But the problem is there are good people beneath them that are getting swept up under it. Absolutely. Right? So so to that point, every night at 9 p.m. when Tucker Carlson is telling— Lots of decent Americans who believe that's their news, that their son won't get into college or he'll be accused of rape. I want to acknowledge that because those people shouldn't think that way because that thought process slips into the ether and we got to get it out because it's not true. But if we ignore it, so how does that how is it differently than doing it in a podcast from your perspective? Because I think you've got time. Mm -hmm. I think it's about time and trust. Right. Right. I, I think. TV is all about breaking news and breaking news, and you got to stay on the story mm-hmm. of the day. Right. And the podcast, it's I very think twitchy. you can unplug and say, this story isn't in the news, but I think this thing matters. Mm-hmm. And I think when you give actual time and you're speaking to unlikely people, right? I have my mom on the podcast hmm. who is— the toughest, she, you know, when I met your mom, they actually remind me of one another, both little. Yeah, my mom's but, not coming on this podcast, um, but go ahead. But my mom is sort of the strongest little ass kicker I know, and she hates the word feminist, and she's not a feminist. She mm-hmm. also voted for the president. But she's somebody I love and respect, and I wanted to get sort of her perspective. Mm-hmm. She's not somebody I would put on a breaking news day. And mm-hmm. I actually worried because I remember MSNBC, like, put one of her quotes up, and I'm like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. They're going to annihilate my poor little Trump mm-hmm. voting mom. Mm-hmm. And people didn't. Mm-hmm. And because she kind of had this perspective where she said, you know what? I've never connected with feminism because maybe it never connected with me. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at, at women who have more traditional lives, like stay-at-home moms, sure. maybe they— it, You look at the women's movement and it gets bigger and more powerful, but is it really completely inclusive? Right. And— there's a lot of parents out there, for example, who don't go back to work because they can't afford to. Mm-hmm. You know, childcare, you have a new baby. Childcare in the United States mm-hmm. is prohibitively expensive. It is. And so I think that there are tons of great, strong groups and voices. But I think if we, when, when I look at a Trump rally sometimes and I look at the women standing behind him and I mm-hmm. think, how the hell are they standing with him? Mm-hmm. It makes me think more, do those women— ever feel like I stood with them? Or what is their life like? What is their human experience like? And you're right. There are tons of bad actors and terrible people. 
But I think there's also a lot of really good people, and we got to find a way to get to them, mm-hmm. or at least connect with them. Mm-hmm. Not this. Well, you know, it's an I interesting thing you when you're talking about that. One of the, the good parts about a podcast is that you do get to talk a long time, just like we're doing here. Um, and uh, she's playing with her Look bracelets. at Anthony Scaramucci. Right. I know he's somebody who you like a lot. Well, yeah. <laughs> I do. But, yes. But that's somebody— He was on the podcast. I did. He was surprised yes. I invited him. And, yeah. and, but when you sat down and you talked to him mm-hmm. for a while, and you heard his perspective— right. You felt them a whole lot more. I think people were surprised by that interview, that I did it, for one. I think people are like, how could you do that? And I'm like, well, I'm going to listen to him because, you know, he's not the most—he's un- he's got issues for sure. And, you know, and we ended up talking about being um, culpable for the people that you represent. And one for of the sure. things that we talked about is this idea of among supporters of Trump, like he was at the time. Now he's obviously shifted rather dramatically in the opposite direction. But at the time, you know, he's like, I'm nice to gays. I believe in this. I believe this. And I was like, you can't have an a la carte position on someone like Donald Trump. Like some people, sure you can, but you can't say, oh, the racism bothers me, but I love the tax cut. And that's what I wanted to talk about with him. And we had a great discussion about him. And whether I got through to him or not, it was a great discussion. I was like, you can't be a la carte. You but can't. that's where it's the most reprehensible. Right. Right. When wealthy people, which by the way, I think the president has a bigger base than we realize. Oh, my wealth. Absolutely. I think his, his core—remember, when he won last time, he didn't have the investor class. Right. He didn't have Wall Street at all. Now he does. Yeah. So he hasn't lost— That's because they're terrified of Elizabeth Warren. Correct. Okay, but you know what? If they're really terrified of Elizabeth Warren, then look in the goddamn mirror. Because do you know what a rallying cry is going to be in her campaign? That Adam Newman walked out of WeWork with $1.7 billion dollars right. and 2,000 people get fired. I get fired. it. I get it. That, that GE is, is pausing their pensions. So like when Wall Street's going, oh my God, I can't believe we could get Elizabeth Warren. Look at what you're doing. You are the ones that are going to elect her. Mm-hmm. Right. No, I get it. No, I get it. It's just, it's odd that they call her, I had someone call her a demon to me the other day. I was like, you have got to stop. Like you've got, it was fascinating. I was what really, I think is really fascinating is we are still, right? People vote with what's in their gut, uh-huh. we are still—they're just—I don't know if it's that we haven't had enough women in power yet. Right. We still just put women in these categories. Yeah. That, like, there's a zillion horrible guys that we've worked for, that we've voted for, and nobody ever talks about who they well, are. I and always women still fall into this category of, I could love her like a mother, or I could love her like a woman I want to sleep with. Right. I don't look at guys that way. Right, right. And women don't—people uh, don't say that out loud about women, but you still can feel yeah. that guttural response. And I'm like, God, that's got to change. Well, one by one, and we'll get to this in a second— um, I want to get rid of the school marm idea around Elizabeth Warren. I, someone said that to me the other day. I go, when did you meet a school marm, precisely? And they're like, well. And I go, you've never met a school marm, Laura Ingalls Wilder. I said, Little House on the Prairie doesn't exist. You did not. You've never met a school marm. There's no such thing. You've never had a teacher who behaves like that, I'm guessing. I'm guessing there's no marmish. Like, I, like what do you live in, 1890 and wear, like, a petticoat? No. <laughs> she, there's no such fucking thing as a school marm. Like, so stop. Pick another word. What— and then I figured out, I finally figured out why these guys don't like her, especially guys, because she was the professor. I'm trying to figure out who she is to them because there's everyone's something to someone or reminds someone. She's the professor in college, the really good professor in college that gave them a D they very much deserved. Yes. And so, and told them, you deserve this D. And they hate her for giving them the D that they deserved. I think she's the girl in high school who 
quietly was a straight-A student, mm-hmm. and she's pretty good at sports, and she's not interested in dating you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when you fall, <laughs> right? So it's like you don't get to reject her sexually. She's She can run as fast as you around the track, and she beat you on a test. She doesn't need you. Yeah. So in the world of Tarzan and Jane, yeah. she Tarzan doesn't have to exist in her world. Right. And that's hard for them to handle. Saturday Night Live described her— as a stay-at-home mom with the stamina of a stay-at-home mom with five kids, each who play a different sport. And she does have that. (laughs) All right, we're going to talk about that more when we get back. We're here with Stephanie Rule from MSNBC and NBC News. She also has a new podcast called uh, Modern Rules. Um, I want to hear about some of the guests when we get back and then a little bit about this issue of sexism in the media and finance and across the country. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We're here with Stephanie Rule from MSNBC and NBC News. Uh, I often appear on her show because it's a lot of fun. I don't. I try not to do too many TV things because I do find them reductive. Like I have yeah. to say, I've, I you know I won't go on with lots of people. I don't want to do arguing. I have expertise and I've spent my life having expertise. So I tend to like not love cable, even though I also have a contract with NBC. But and you can't really talk in stronger terms. But Talk a little bit about right now. I, I'd be amiss if I didn't ask about NBC right now. It's in the midst. I just interviewed Ronan Farrow. Uh, Rachel Maddow just on your on your network uh, just did a pretty devastating critique of her, her bosses. What's it like? She said a lot of people there, you can't tell how upset people are, including at Andy Lack, who helps you in your career. Um, listen, it's a trying time there for sure, without a doubt. I think that, I mean, I'm very much— Focused on my show and mm-hmm. my team. We mm-hmm. covered Ronan's book. Mm-hmm. We didn't cover it before it came out. We covered it when it came out because I remember feeling like we're going to cover this, but I never covered any book that we haven't read. Mm-hmm. I think it's a complicated issue. Uh, it's complicated at NBC and elsewhere. And I think it's sort of a reminder of a corporate class system. It, even if you look at the people who feel confused or upset, And I often feel like, well, I'm not that confused or upset. And what that exposes is the more senior people are, the more access they have to information and power. Mm -hmm. And that has to change, Mm -hmm. right? If you want an organization where everyone has— and by the way, you should want an organization where everyone has their voice heard because I'm old. I don't have any new ideas. Mm -hmm. You want the youngest people to have a voice and have a chance to speak their mind. When I look at the people who have the most questions or who are the most upset— it's they're the people who are the most disconnected, and they shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Across every industry, we should take our youngest people and make sure they have a seat at the table. And when there's all been all these arguments before about diversity and quotas, you ha- like this is a great example of the importance of diversity of thought. You have to have more people questioning everything you do, mm-hmm. right? When you and I are together talking about lots of things, every time I leave you— you've questioned something that I didn't think of. Mm -hmm. Now, because I didn't think of it doesn't mean I'm an asshole, doesn't mean I'm a bad person, Mm -hmm. but 
There was a page I didn't turn, and you turned that for me. We have to change that. Well, how do you change those corporate cultures? Because, you know, at NBC, it looked like a, people in power look the other way or were complicit in it. How, like, NBC is just an example of many corporate situations like this. But one of the, the, the through lines for all these stories and what Ronan is writing about is power looking the other way or keeping, you know, keeping people quiet, uh, non-disclosure agreements and things like that, which happens on Wall Street. You've experienced it your whole life. You know, what's funny, what's made me sad is when you've experienced it your whole life, you think, I argue about lots of these issues, not just my company, but all these issues. I notice it the most with my assistant. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'm thinking like, oh, you're naive and you're green. But what I really realized, what I actually realized is Maybe I've been inside the corporate asylum for so long mm -hmm. that I don't know that it's crazy. Right. And that's maybe the most upsetting thing. Yeah, you texted to me. this to me. Yeah. And, and it's funny because, like, when Rachel Maddow talked about NDAs the other day, that's what made me think the most. Because in my mind, and I think I've been conditioned to think that, I always felt like, well, you know, there's two lanes. You can either have your story to tell and you can go tell it, or, you know, you get a settlement and then you don't get to tell your story and, and that's what it is. But it's amazing to me that that's—I thought of it in such a simplistic way mm -hmm. because for the most part, NDAs and this situation is unique to women, mm -hmm. right? And so sure that is. compensation settlement is really about you had to leave your job. You maybe had to leave your industry. But the money plus not being able to ever speak that again is about a corporate cover-up. Right. And, I and guess you sold my, yourself. You've yes, been forced to sell yourself. And my sadness is— that I've been part of a system for so long that I couldn't see that. Mm -hmm. And so this is a time when, again, like I don't think it's unique to the, to my employer. I don't think it's unique to an industry, right? Like when NDAs I remember— NDAs are pernicious. Yes, but also industries that are really subjective. Right. Right? Like in, I would say on Wall Street, a, a positive is, yes, in terms of racism and sexism— it was very much a boys' club and very hard to get in, mm -hmm. right? When my husband and I, uh, we met in the training program at Credit Suisse. Mm -hmm. But when we both walked in to Credit Suisse on a trading floor on our very first day, he walked on as a private school guy who went to Princeton where he played lacrosse. So when, that, when a guy like that walks onto a trading floor, there's an inordinate amount of guys in his network who are going to help him make his way. Mm -hmm. I don't begrudge his network, but when a public school girl from New Jersey walks in and there's nobody who looks like her or sounds like her, she's really got to find her own path. Mm -hmm. Now, Wall Street failed for a long time at getting other people in. Maybe mm -hmm. they're addressing it. But as far as kind of the more twisted things that I now see, whether it's in entertainment or media, they're much more subjective businesses mm -hmm. where a couple of people have huge power over opportunity for everybody. for everybody. And, you know, there's only so many hours on TV. There's only so many parts in a movie. Mm -hmm. In banking or technology, hey, if you can come up with something, like there's more money to be made. Right. So, so subjective businesses where people's job function isn't that closely tied to profitability, I think can get more twisted. 100%. I, I think it's that way in academia. No, well, they take advantage of your insecurity and your fear and the scarcity. Yes. They, you know, they, scarcity is a really effective way to control people. Like, that, you only get this much. And then everyone starts to eat. You're same thing we're talking about with the waitress. Everyone starts eating each other. Yes. Banking wasn't that way. Banking was much—I mean, once you made it through the brutality of the first few phases that shouldn't be as brutal as they are, and you built your book of business— in my experience, 
you could be black, white, purple, or a woman, or pregnant, or standing mm-hmm. on your head. And uh, it was much easier in the second half of my career in banking mm-hmm. than it was the first. Right. And I think entertainment, I think news, seems to be the opposite. Yeah, it's interesting. One time I was doing a story on, uh, I can say who, but they were. there's a lot of off-the-record insulting, too, like undercutting and stuff like that. And one of the top executives somewhere I was writing about was saying—and I had not had a lot of experience. I was writing about Internet people, which is his own set of sexism and racism and things like which is very different. Was someone wanted to call someone an anchor monster? And I, I, I like, that's a great quote. You should use that. I said, well, can you put your name to that? No, of course not. And I said, well, I'm not going to use it. I'm not going to be your vehicle for, for slagging someone— uh, it, it, this it happened to be a woman. I said, I'm not going to have you use my vehicle for doing that. I'm not slagging him unless you put your, put your name on it. I'll do the quote. Yeah. Sure will. But you need responsibility for it. And it was, no, why would I do that? I was like, I just was fascinating. It was, fa- and I was, it was but a fascinating it's a encounter. But of passive aggressive right. gossip. Mm-hmm. And I guess the thing that I miss most, and I don't miss working mm-hmm. in finance, but what I miss most I prefer aggressive, aggressive to passive aggressive. <laughs> me too. Aggressive, me right? too, Stephanie. Punch me on so, the face. In the face. Don't stab me in so the back. So let's finish up talking about. You were talking about cancel culture. You're talking about obviously yesterday. Jack Dorsey made this announcement of dumping political ads. Big news. Um, this idea of you know you were talking about social media making it even worse, put balkanizing us even more. Talk about where you think tech is right now, because you have a lot of tech people on your show. You you were going to presumably interview a lot of tech has a big influence on society. You have an interest in it yourself. Where do you imagine we are right now? Listen, I think we are in a dangerous, dangerous place. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, during the last campaign, I went and I spent the night at a sorority house, and I was asking. It was amazing because uh, I, I played a game with the with all the girls, uh, you know, celebrity, and you, you know, with all the names in a hat and. They didn't know any of the people I knew, and I didn't know any of the people they did. <laughs> but I was asking them about where they got their news, and I was asking about the platforms of the candidates, and they had no idea. Mm-hmm. And I thought, we have so much content out there, but so little is getting through. Mm-hmm. But my big worry, honestly, is about standards and best practices, right? I can't sit down and write a nonsense story, about uh, a made-up story that says, um, you know, you should take your kids out of school, let them watch TV and play video games all day. That'll make them the next Mark Zuckerberg. I can't write that story and put it on NBCNews.com mm-hmm. tomorrow because of legal and standards. Mm-hmm. I could write that story and then by the website, GreatAmericanMoms.com, put it on Facebook, and in a week my mother will be telling me that story. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to say people should— read terms and conditions. Nobody's ever going to read that. They're, they're just not going to. And when we say Facebook has a huge problem, I think they have a huge existential problem, but I don't actually think they have a real problem because their advertisers haven't left and people no. aren't deleting. Right. So was Mark Zuckerberg grilled on the Hill? Yup. And maybe he was embarrassed. But all he really needs to do the next day is turn the TV off. Because mm-hmm. that next day, Facebook was still making $110 million. Yeah. So I think we think they have a big problem, but they don't. On Monday, I did an event. Mm-hmm. I did a conference. And the keynote before me was David Marcus, who runs Libra at mm-hmm. Facebook. Yes, David. Lovely. The interview starts, and the person interviewing him says, we've done this a different way. We've collected questions over the last few weeks uh, from people attending today, mm-hmm. and we submitted the questions to Facebook, and they pre-approved them. Yes, that's what they did at the speech, yeah. You, 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 they did it at the speech at George Cara, Go ahead. I lost my mind. I'm not going to—you know what? And I stood up, and I said, this is—I'm in the green room, and I said, this is insane. Mm-hmm. This is ridiculous. And everyone is looking at me like I have two heads. Mm-hmm. They go, what do you mean? 
And then the person who ran content sat down with me and they said, well, Facebook didn't want to do an interview at all. They just wanted to do a presentation. So this was a compromise. And I said, so they went from an advertisement to an infomercial. But <laughs> this all, we, we are part of this because this does go to the Svengali PR machine that Facebook was for years. Mm -hmm. And we don't think that it's access journalism, but to an extent— Oh, it totally is. It, it, it absolutely is. Yeah. And I think we don't know the risks associated. I'll tell you, I'm damn tired of whether I hear it from Mark or anyone else with the, well, we're just a startup. Mm -hmm. Come on. Also, it's just free speech. We're just a startup. It's just free speech. I get it. You didn't realize you were going to create a monster, but you did. Mm -hmm. And regulation hasn't caught up. Mm -hmm. It's To me, it's unthinkable to not call these organizations publishers at this point. Mm -hmm. They are absolutely publishers, and I just don't understand why there aren't more standards. I happen to love Instagram, but I actually went to Instagram months ago, and they tried to tell me that they don't allow Instagram accounts for people under the age of 13. Mm -hmm. And I said— I can name you 20 people I know whose babies have an Instagram account. Right. And I'm sure you've talked about this at length, but the insecurity, the depression, like what is happening to our kids and our teens because of social media, mm -hmm. these companies aren't going to change their behavior because we're their content creators. The advertisers love it. The only thing that's going to change it are the rulemakers, the lawmakers, and they have to actually do something. Right. So will they? I don't feel like they will, but they darn well should. Uh, listen— Breaking up, breaking up the big tech giants is the one thing that Ted Cruz and uh, Elizabeth Warren agree on. Right, exactly. So and when you're thinking about where the economy is going next, where politics, what are you going to be focusing on on the podcast and just in general on your show? I'm very much focused on across the board, financially and culturally, are we better off? Where are we going? Mm -hmm. Because I do think as it relates to cancel culture, simply flushing people down the toilet and saying I'm done with them mm -hmm. isn't going to solve anything. And misusing data that just talks about the economy is great or business is great, it's not. I mean, mm -hmm. listen, it's really good. The United States is better than other countries. But this whole idea that, you know, we're bringing manufacturing back, Kara. Laverne and Shirley are never getting their jobs back <laughs> at the bottling factory. For those who don't Any know the reference, money that it's companies, a television show uh, of television the 1980s show. about Any, two girls who work in a beer factory. Correct. They're not getting their jobs back. Any money besides buybacks that CEOs are spending from, from their big tax cut is not on hiring low-skilled workers. It's on automation. Mm -hmm. And if we don't just start addressing that, and bravo to Andrew Yang, who's bringing that up over and over, mm -hmm. that is the issue, right? Mm -hmm. We need to talk more about if you care about income inequality, then you better care about public education. Because the education you and I, I don't know if you went to private school or public. I went to public. The education private. I received as a kid is far better than the public education being offered to people now. So when the president actually said, I remember he had those two events, uh, I want to say in, in African-American churches when he was running. And he said, what do you have to lose? And the elite media, me part of it, were outraged and it was offensive. And it was offensive. But I don't know, if I was a single mom and I was living in the south side of Chicago and I didn't have a good job, my kids went to a horrible school and I didn't live in a safe neighborhood, I might say, I have nothing to lose. So we have to really address, and I'm going to focus on it, definitely as we lead uh, into the election, as we— uh, Listen, a recession is not a crisis, 
right? Ken Langone, of all people, said it best. It's like a diet. Nobody wants to go on it, but every few years you need one. Mm -hmm. So I'm definitely focused on the recession, the economy, and are people better off? The president rightfully went to see lots of people and said, I'm going to solve this. And reprehensibly, he had no intention of doing it, and he didn't. Mm -hmm. So your big topics for the next six months. I'm going to focus very much— Income inequality. Income inequality. Education, healthcare, the economy. Finding out, are people better off? And if they're not, looking for solutions to help them be. So who are your dream guests? Ooh. I think I don't have an answer yet. for Who's who's your dream guest? Jesus. Obviously. (laughs) You know, I remember Ellen DeGeneres asked when when Megyn Kelly was—I never forget this. Ellen DeGeneres asked Megyn Kelly— would you interview Donald Trump? Because she was starting a morning yeah. show. There was no politics. Right. And she said, would, would you interview Donald Trump? And Megan said, of course I would. She goes, wouldn't you? And Ellen said, no. And Megan said, yes, you would. He's president. And Ellen said, nope. I only interview people that I respect. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it. I, I think about that she said that. Mm-hmm. So, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be, she has a different kind of show. Yeah. You don't have to have people that you always like. Mm-hmm. But I, I really want to bring people on of influence. Mm-hmm. And if they're not making us better and smarter, I sure as shit want to expose them for it. But I want to try to bring people on who actually care about the world being better and smarter. I want to hold the business roundtable accountable mm-hmm. for this whole new plan that they have oh, yeah. to care more. <laughs> you believe them. To care more. I don't like, believe them. Really? Because I'm pretty they sure— did that 20 years ago. You correct. Know, and I'm pretty sure people who signed that letter from the business roundtable, <sighs> I think there's a few people who have benefited from the carried interest loophole that was supposed to come out of the tax code last time, and it's still in there. Right. And I'm going to hold all those people to account. Good. Stephanie? Cara? You're on it. I appreciate it. Everybody, Stephanie Rule, thank you for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer is Erica Anderson at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Stephanie, where can people find this podcast and you online? Anywhere they get their podcasts, you can find Modern Rules. Uh, R-U-H-L-E-S. And uh, Stephanie, Compelling conversations in a culturally complicated time. What? Is that your little mantra? Yes. Okay. Compelling conversations in a culturally complicated (laughs) time. There's a lot of C's going Um, on there. You can find me on the Instagram, but that's really just my kids. That's at Steph Rule. You can find me on the Twitter at S Rule. You are. Or on TV. You are on the Twitter a lot. At 9 a.m., at 1 p.m. Yeah. I am on the Twitter. You're on the Twitter. You're good on the Twitter. You're quite good. If you like this episode, we really appreciate if you shared it with a friend and make sure to check out our newest podcast, Reset. Just search for it in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.